What has been most painful for me has been to notice that the shrinking of rights, this empathy deficit that I've seen, has been led by people who called themselves followers of Jesus. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss, and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up. We're going to talk a little bit about our time in faraway Lincoln, Vermont. And then later on the pod, we have the honor and privilege of sitting down with retiring circuit judge from the state of Arkansas, Reverend Wendell Griffin. It's going to be a great episode, so stay tuned. Hello there, Missy. How is your week going? It's going well. How's yours? Not bad. Good. So, I mean, I haven't heard heard from you all the way across uh, the house this week. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, you say not bad. We did have that little blip um, on Sunday as we tried to drive. Oh, my gosh. Hanover. We did. Now, we've been up here a couple of weeks. There was almost a divorce or a murder oh, at one point. Yeah, but... I, I had the lawyer on speed dial at that time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But we had the, had the a great uh, opportunity to go see our son, uh, who's going to school over in Hanover, New Hampshire. And so we ventured over there. Yeah, we decided we were going to go over and spend uh, Sunday night and hang out with him as we had Monday off of work. And... Uh, there were a few choices of, of ways that we could drive. One, you know, was the safer route that would take about 20 minutes more, but it kind of was, um, I don't know, maybe a little less windy and hilly and icy. Um, and then the other one was kind of up and over the mountain. And my apologies to those from Lincoln who are listening to this and cringing because I'm getting this all wrong. But in my mind, it was either to go over the mountain or around. We decided we were going to be brave. And yes. go over. And it started out for the first well, literal it was a 60 day. seconds. It was a yeah. Day. Oh, it was a beautiful Sun day. Was but it, it, I mean, it's, it right. is what it is. We're in the mountains. So there are, there is snow and ice on the, on sure. the less traveled roads. So we start out, and I mean, I, we couldn't have been a quarter mile up, up the hill. And it's, Singing and laughing and having a good no, time. No, no. <laughs> And I was nervous, and the the map on the GPS was telling you to go one way. I thought we were supposed to go the other way And if, when we came to this first fork in the road. And so I kind of blurted, no, you're supposed to go right. Well, of course, as you do, you knee-jerk and you stop, which was the wrong thing to do. Um, because then when we figured out which way we were supposed to be going, we were stuck and, and on this hill and couldn't go forward and when you say stuck what do you really mean you couldn't go i don't know yeah we could not go up the hill no we couldn't go up the hill no we were tires were spinning so um the only thing we could do was put the car in reverse Mm -hmm. we you and at that point i really did just want to get out of the car and stand there because i thought if things go awry and you lose control and like i don't know tumble off the side of the hill at least i'm standing the one who made the decision (laughs) Right, I didn't, um, but I so really brave. was so brave. wanting to get out of the car. Anyway, so you put the car in reverse, mm-hmm. and we reversed down an icy hill to the point where, well, 
to the point where a truck was coming up behind us. So we didn't have a choice, but to stop. And then you were able to thankfully get traction and we were able to continue on our journey. Yeah. And once we got to the top of the hill, Oh uh, my gosh, it was so beautiful. Oh it was gosh. worth it. Um, there's a really pretty video on my Instagram. If you don't follow me, it's I think Missy underscore Randall. And you can check that out or, or, Pictures on Mitch's social media are really pretty. So it was a beautiful drive over. Had yeah, a great time. It was gorgeous. It yeah. was absolutely gorgeous. So. so we're still having a great time. Yeah. Learning so. about all the things you can put maple syrup in. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. I, you, think, you think you got a little maple syrup this week in? Okay. So let's list <laughs> the things so far that we know. Coffee. Maples, coffee. Automatically coffee. Kind of like sweet tea in the South. Yes. Like there's no such thing as sweet and unsweet tea. It's just tea, but it's all sweet. Right. Okay. Um, what else was there? Oh, my um oh margaritas you guys margaritas yeah they little, put maple syrup margar- in yeah. margaritas yeah, who'd have um, thunk it and then I am pretty convinced <laughs> even though the waiter said that was was not true there was maple syrup in my ranch yeah. I'm convinced well first of all ordering ranch dressing in Vermont is kind of it was on the menu <laughs> it's fine so yeah. yeah but yeah it is everywhere apparently so. goes everywhere yeah. Well, you have a question for me. I've been preaching here in Lincoln for three weeks now. I've been having a great time. Great to be in the back in the pulpit and uh, interaction with the congregation. But a couple of weeks ago was Epiphany Sunday. And after church that day, you had a question for me. Yeah, I, I did. And I thought it might be, even though we're, we're past, I don't know, the official Christmas Sundays. But it, we were talking about it earlier, and I thought it might be a good... Um, Thing to talk about today, I thought our listeners might appreciate this as well. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one for whom this was new information, but you were talking about uh, the Sunday after Christmas when you talk about the wise men. And Epiphany Sunday. Is that Epiphany Sunday? Well, it's Epiphany Friday, and then I I chose to carry it over on Sunday. Okay, I don't know. Move forward. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you were talking about the kind of the realities of the situation that. You know, of course, we romanticize many things, um, but one of the things we romanticize is about Mary and Joseph's situation, one of which was that he was, you know, this carpenter, and we like to envision him, you know, crafting these amazing works of, of art, you know, with wood, and in reality, you said, no, he was likely a day laborer. Yeah. Which, again, the imagery in your mind totally changes at that point, right. which I had heard that before, and, and, and that... Um, I think is always a good point to remember that. So this puts a young couple again, teen mom, day laborer, trying to make ends meet, and then the um, and and also being a family with with a child of questionable birth. Mm-hmm. All these things stacked against them. But then the wise men show up, and you mentioned the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Correct. Yep. And we always joke about that, like, oh, if they'd really been, you know, wanting to bring a gift to a new mom, it would have been diapers and formula. But, well, one thing, Jesus was likely a toddler by this point. Mm -hmm. But you talked about the fact that these gifts were likely um, a means for Mary and Joseph to be able to flee because, again, teen mom, day laborer, you know, this child of questionable birth, which back then— did affect your ability to maneuver the world. And, and the wise men come and say, hey, you got to get out of here. You know, your, your child's life is in danger. How do you go? They couldn't just pick up and leave. They didn't have resources, but that these gifts that they brought were their literal life-saving resources. So 
take it from there. Yeah. I mean, my take on this is quite simple. I mean, the Magi are from the East. Uh, they're scholars, uh, very astute, most likely very wealthy. I mean, who can pick up and just travel and go follow a star <laughs> to right. a unknown a, a land looking for an unknown child who's been born. And they have the encounter with Herod. Herod thinks he's being a trickster and wise and convinces them to continue their journey, but to be sure and report back. Uh, to him once they have found the child because, you know, he wants to kill the child because he wants to stay in power. And so at any rate, they get there. And when you arrive to someone's home or where they're living, and which is customary in the Middle East and in most parts of the world, you show up with a gift. Mm -hmm. And because they were wealthy, they show up with these incredible gifts of frankincense uh, or gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And not only do they give them these gifts, they also give them the gift of most likely tipping them off to the fact that Herod is looking for this child. Everybody knows the reputation of Herod. It's easier to be Herod's pigs than his children, one scholar used to say, because he doesn't kill his pigs, but he kills his children because he thinks they're a threat. So everybody knows this about Herod. Well, my theory is that the Magi gave him these gifts, also tipped them off to what Herod was planning on doing, uh, even if they didn't know he was going to order or deliver an edict to kill children, he knew that... He was looking well, for Well, the they game. knew his intentions were exactly, likely not exactly, good. Exactly, exactly. So my theory is the Magi give them these resources that they desperately need. Again, Joseph's a day laborer. Mary's a teen mom. Their child is of questionable birth. They're extremely poor. Yes, they made it from Nazareth to Bethlehem, but that was based upon uh, a census that was going on in the land. And so they have stayed in Bethlehem. And again, it convinces you that they've been there two years now. They have no money to travel back home to so, Nazareth. So, okay, that brings up another point. So did they stay there because they didn't have the resources Text to go back say, home? But, you know, I think it, it you know, ration, you know, rationale uh, and reason suggests that that could possibly be the case. Um, you know, also they had a, a toddler. It'd be, been tough to, to travel back home with a, a little one. But also they probably didn't have the money to do so. Mm-hmm. And so when they get these gifts from the Magi, it is a windfall. But they cannot go back to the north because to go back to the north, what do you have to do? I don't know. Got to go back through Jerusalem. Go over the hill? <laughs> <laughs> well, pretty much, yeah. But you have to go near Jerusalem, and Herod's close to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And so the only thing they can do, especially once they hear of Herod's edict to kill all of the children two years and younger. Well, all the boys, right? All the boys in Bethlehem. They now have the resources to flee, and they flee to Egypt, which was not a cheap ticket. They had to have the resources to travel to a foreign country, which is the largest empire in that region at the time. So it's a pricey trip. And so now they have the resources. And to me, that is the great miracle of the Magi story, is that God in God's infinite wisdom is constantly looking out for, in this case, uh, God's child and this couple, protecting them, guiding them, providing resources for them to make, to make their way to safety until salvation. 
So obviously gold is valuable, yeah. but I, I don't know frankincense and myrrh. I guess are those are those valuable? Yeah, I mean they're spices and they're they're fragrance frank, fragrances <laughs> uh, that are you know are very you know worth money back then. I mean, so in theory, like maybe they were able to sell those. Oh yeah, they could liquidate them easily on the market. It's just so interesting to put things in. I don't know in our modern day mind that make but, sense like that, even though, I mean, we don't know. We're, but, we're, same, but we hear the same stories. In fact, I, I wrote an article this week about uh, one of the local artists here in Lincoln and uh, the artist told story after story. I mean, he, he was a, um, you know, a struggling artist trying to put food on the table for his family. And, but he was also a person of faith. And he said, he can't tell you how many times, he would tell his his wife would need to go buy groceries for the family, and they would go down to the local grocery store, and she would come back. And he said, we didn't have the money in the bank account, but she would go to the grocery store, write a check for, uh, in this particular story, $92. Mm-hmm. And he would she would come back, and he would say, okay, how much was the grocery, how much were groceries this week? And she said, I just can't tell you, I can't tell you. He said, no, really tell me. He said, no, it's, it's too much, I just can't tell you. And he said, I can tell you, it's $92. And she said, How'd you know that? He said, we just got a check in the mail for one of my pieces for $92. He said, it was crazy. That happened all the time. And to me, it's just God's way of reminding us that God's going to take care of us. And it may not always look the same. It may be late (laughs) as far as our timetable is concerned. But God loves us and cares for us and is always looking to take care of his people. So that brought up a story in my mind. I know we're going a little bit long, but do you remember our story of uh, when we first got married and uh, counting pennies? And this is not by any means to eat or to pay rent or anything like this. So it's, I'm not equating that in any way, but it was a neat little story that we, um, we were first married, just students. And uh, we had this little, house we were renting and we did not have a table and chairs mm-hmm. at all and so we needed a table and chairs and we found at walmart had this little like picnic table kind of fake wood thing that we could buy and it, i think it was 33 dollars yeah that's something yeah I mean, it was, that was how cheap yeah. it was we did not have that money so we dumped out our big change bucket on the floor and we started counting our quarters and nickels and rolling them up and lo and behold the amount in that change jar was the exact amount with tax that we needed for that table and i mean again not equating this with fleeing (laughs) herod at all Mm -hmm. but um those moments just do kind of remind you that you're reminded not only of you know divine providence but also the generosity in the magi story how their generosity um you know assisted you know Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, but then also just the human ability to survive and to turn what little you have into an asset to make certain that you know you can eat or you can have a table to sit at and have a nice dinner from time to time. I think anytime we can take like we, you and I, have beating this drum, you can take these biblical narratives and and humanize them. It just to me, you know makes it more real, more relatable mm-hmm. um, when you take kind of the mysticism or the, the quote-unquote magic out of it and, and say, no, this was a young, struggling family. No wonder they had been there for so long. They probably couldn't afford to leave. And then all of a sudden, 
now they have some means to leave. And again, we don't know for sure. The text doesn't say that. But if you put two and two together, that that might be what happened. Yeah. Well, at least that's what I think. So, But I appreciate you asking the question, and hopefully uh, my answer Help somebody out there this week. So, so. Well, you and I had the honor and privilege of sitting down with retiring circuit judge from the state of Arkansas, Reverend Wendell Griffin, this week. And so uh, it's a great conversation that we have with the judge, and so I think everybody's going to enjoy it. So stay tuned. Wendell Griffin's up next. Hey, listeners. Check us out online at goodfaithmedia.org and follow us on social at gfmedia.org. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm new here and could really use the feedback, but only if it's glowing. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us all the way from Little Rock, Arkansas. Reverend Judge Wendell Griffin is the pastor at New Millennium church in Little Rock, Arkansas. He recently retired from the bench as a state circuit judge. He is a trustee of the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, the author of one book and three blogs, and a consultant on cultural competency and inclusion. He recently joined the Good Faith Media team as a contributing correspondent. Judge, reverend, friend, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Howdy, Mitch. Howdy, Missy. It's good to see you. You. Well, Judge, first of all, congratulations on your retirement from the bench. You've been a circuit judge in Pulaski County since 2010. Over those years, you have seen and heard, I am certain, thousands of cases. And so my first question is this. What have you seen as the most significant transformation in the legal system since you arrived on the bench? Oh, that's a tough one because there have been, as you would imagine, Mitch, uh, changes. Technology has produced a great change. I went to law school during the time when everything was books. The law library was, you know, the big investment in a lawyer's uh, practice aside from uh, rent and personnel costs. Right. I graduated from law school in 1979, and uh, computers were room-sized devices mm-hmm. with their own separate air conditioning units. By the time I got on the bench, uh, the computers were now desktops, and nobody was talking about uh, dictaphones. Nobody was dictating and, uh, and because everybody was typing into their desktops. Before too long, we're talking about laptops. Right. And uh, digital research had come online, but the digital research was electronic, and you were going into big servers. Now, as you know, uh, everything is an app. <laughs> and, right. and so... There's an app for this, an app for that, and an app for wills, and an app for everything else, uh, from from uh, from applications to to uh, to Z, sure. and so that's the big change. But also the notion of of what it means to be to be a lawyer mm-hmm. in a growing a a much smaller, at the same time much more distant kind of world. When I started practicing law, 
you knew in a state like Arkansas. I mean, you've lived in a, in a smaller state that's comparable size, right. a rural state. You knew the, most of the people who were practicing law mm-hmm. in the state by name or by association with somebody else. And there was a certain, a certain code of professionalism in practice. Uh, the digital age makes one almost anonymous and also notorious. Ah. Uh, you know, the notion that one can be an instant celebrity because you can go online mm-hmm. and you can do stuff with a certain degree of, shall I say, uh, not irresponsibility, but cavalierness mm-hmm. because the notions of censure are less applied because you don't have no longer have a group of lawyers who are your peers. You can get out and practice law and do stuff. Well, so that's a big change. And the other thing I'll quickly bring this long answer to a close. The other thing that's changed and it's a change, I suppose over the last couple of decades or so is I started law school at the end of the seventies and I was a person who grew up during the civil rights era. Mm-hmm. And so I came into the practice with this notion of the growing expansion of the rights of women, persons of color, uh, concerns about people who were disabled, uh, vocational issues. And now, as we approach the end of the first quarter of the 21st century, I see a shrinking of rights mm-hmm. so that the rights of women the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973, as you know, was was reversed in ni- in 2022. So, the rights of women that I watched literally watched expand. I am now seeing close, and I'm seeing the professional in terms of legal effects of that. I'm seeing the pastoral effects of that. I'm seeing the personal effects of that. And I don't think we have as a society developed the moral and the emotional and the ethical sense of empathy Mm. to deal with those kind of shifts and changes. Empathy has been the big change I have seen change. And it's it's not a pleasant thing. That has got to be a fascinating uh, situation you find yourself in, as you said, graduating from law school uh, during this very social conscious period of trying to expand rights across the board. And here we are, you know, you mentioned Roe v. Wade, women's rights, also voting rights uh, yeah. are being you know, taken away. Uh, we're just saying LGBTQ rights, uh, those are in danger. We're seeing all these rights that have been fought for over over decades, all of a sudden being decimated by state legislatures and endorsed by the Supreme Court in some cases. So that's got to be horribly frustrating for you, Judge. It is frustrating for me as a jurist. Jurisprudentially, it's, it's, it's frustrating me. Mm-hmm. It's all pro- so frustrating me as a follower of Jesus. Ah, there you go. <laughs> I graduated from college in 1973. I got out, of, got out of the Army in 1976 to start law school, which was the year that Jimmy Carter was elected. 
And so I have a very vivid memory of a Baptist layperson who was unapologetically a follower of Jesus, unapologetically faithful, unapologetically devout, devout, and unapologetically empathic. And he was defeated in 1980 Mm -hmm. by people who were as as doctrinaire about their, shall I say, narrow-mindedness as he was about his empire. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Carter was defeated by people who did not want women to have reproductive choice. Who did not want to see voting rights uh, advance? Who opposed Jimmy Carter's uh, embrace of peace in the Middle East between the Israelis, the Palestinians, and the Arabs? Who opposed Jimmy Carter's uh, notion that the U.S. did not have a right to hold the Panama Canal in perpetuity? Right just because we'd invested in it uh, and who opposed him because he was honest about the issue of global economy and our fossil fuel industry. People forget that Jimmy Carter, the nuclear engineer, the naval warrior was a president of peace who got the peace prize for negotiating a peace settlement between ancient enemies and who was turned out as we read in the first chapter of John by his own. He came to his own and his own turned him out. And what has been most painful for me has been to notice that the shrinking of rights, this empathy deficit that I've seen, Mm -hmm has been led by people who called themselves followers of Jesus. Yeah. Well said. Yeah, very well said. So while you two are talking about very important things that have changed over time, I still am a little bit stuck back in needing to know what a dictaphone is. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Missy. Wow. Missy, Missy, think of a digital handheld recording device. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, a, a digital device, a h- digital handheld divider. So, so you would do uh, 15 years ago uh, or 10 years ago, maybe uh, an interview if you were running to get a scoop. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> but, but this thing is attached to uh, uh, to something like a like a tape recorder, which really has a metallic tape mm-hmm. running on it. And ah. you're dictating your verse. So, so if you're doing a letter, saying, uh, say literally, uh, secretary, take a letter to John Doe. Uh, today's date is uh, January one eight, comma, two thousand two three. Capital D, dear. Capital J, John, comma. <laughs> wow. Capital <laughs> H, how are you? Period. Uh, your youth uh, is showing. I'm this. glad to know <laughs> that you are still engaged in this wonderful work of trying to figure out how to deal with this lawsuit, period. I mean, that literally was the way I was taught to dictate 
a letter to my secretary who would then, I would, she would get a little, little floppy tape. Mm-hmm. So it's a voice um, text is what I'm hearing yes, you ma'am. say. Yes, ma'am. Like, <laughs> exactly. Hey, Mitch, exactly. pick up bread at the grocery store, period. Yeah. My question is, how did you insert emojis? <laughs> what in the world was emoji? <laughs> I digress. So back no, to the, back to the topic but, at hand. No, but Missy, that's the great question. I mean, I'm, that just shows you the 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 kind of changes i grew up reading the dick tracy comics and the wrist watch phone mm-hmm. was a reality now folks have got apple phones or smartphones on their wrists where they literally can not only check their text messages but also tell time and adjust their calendar and that kind of business so uh all of this change has happened right and uh, thank you for the question. So, in, so in the course of of your uh, career on the bench, is there any are there any cases of note that stand out to you, um, or maybe a, a case you wish had turned out differently that you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, the one that I two I wish had turned out differently. Um, the most obvious one is the one for which I'm probably most well known, or most well criticized most often criticized depending on how you look at the google text or the the, the internet browser text uh, i am the only judge in the history of arkansas who uh was banned permanently from hearing and deciding death penalty cases based upon a decision i made to grant a temporary restraining order in 2017 in favor of the distributor of a pharmaceutical product that was used by the state of Arkansas for lethal injections. That distributor's product had been obtained by the state of Arkansas through fraud. And the distributor uh, brought a lawsuit to to, uh, recover its product. I granted that, I granted a temporary restraining order because they were going to have eight executions beginning the week and the beginning of the week after Holy Week mm. of, uh, and uh, the temporary restraining order landed on my desk on Good Friday. Wow. Uh, our, our congregation had planned a Good Friday worship service um, but instead of our usual Good Friday worship service in the, in the congregation because uh, we identified the execution of these people with the execution of Jesus uh, we decided to have our Good Friday vigil in front of the governor's mansion. Uh, and so uh, this was all planned before I got the case. Uh, and I was on my way to the governor's mansion with my cotton, my outfit, and then the case landed on my desk. And, uh, and so when the news reports came out about our Good Friday vigil, uh, all Devilment broke loose, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, by Monday, I had been banned for life. I wish uh, the another case, another judge was assigned to that case, and she also granted a reversing order. Mm-hmm. But the Supreme Court of Arkansas took the case from her and from me, lifted the retaining order, and allowed the execution to go forth with catch this, 
drugs that to this day nobody has proven were not stolen. Oh wow. my gosh. And so and so people were put to death in the name of the state of Arkansas using products that the state of Arkansas had intentionally obtained through fraud and deception. Hmm. And I regret that because no one, no matter how you feel about capital punishment, nobody should be put to death uh, by by criminal means. Right. I mean, if you're going to say that murder is a crime, you shouldn't kill murderers by stealing the stuff you kill them with and then saying you're doing justice. Yeah, there you go. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's the one that's a big yeah. one. And the second one is, one that nobody knows about, and that's uh, in 2000, I and one other judge on our Court of Appeals, when I was on the Court of Appeals, uh, wrote, I wrote a dissenting opinion and joined by one of the other judges uh, involving a uh, disorderly conduct charge and conviction against a black man who was visiting his relatives one night in North Little Rock got a phone call from his girlfriend that her car had broken down and went outside to catch a cab and police officers saw him standing on the outside and long story short, basically uh, attacked him when he rather profanely asked him why they were messing with him. And I'm using the polite terms. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they beat him arrested him, charged him with public intoxication, disorderly conduct, and resisting arrest, and uh, and said they did it because he uh, cussed them. Wow. Uh, and the disorderly conduct charge was resulted in a conviction. Mm-hmm. So it was a misdemeanor, but again, the, the resisting arrest was dismissed. dismissed. Right. The public intoxication was dismissed. And on appeal, uh, the, the Court of Appeals and the Arkansas Supreme Court affirmed it. Mm. Uh, I regret that because that man later died, and he was a veteran. And I, uh, every Memorial Day, I go to visit the cemetery, of, uh, one of the veteran cemeteries, and I stop by his grave and I think, wonder why in the world you think that it was right for somebody who was a veteran to get attacked by the police Mm. because he had the temerity to cuss them for basically profiling him for waiting while black outside his aunt's house as he was waiting for a cab. Right. Mm -hmm. This was before George Floyd. Sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, this was 20 years before George Floyd, but now that, that, that stuck with me and it haunts me to this day. Wow. Judge, one of the things that I personally admire about you and I know so many others admire as well has been your ability to balance your position as judge with your role as prophet and pastor how have you been able to do that so successfully over your career? Because those waters can get muddy pretty quickly, uh, but you seem to have done it and done it with integrity and honor. 
Mitch, that's very kind of you to say. I'm always sort of taken aback when people say that because I don't, I never really feel like that's, I've lived into the prophet role. Uh, um, but I also have to answer your question. I had great examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember, I grew up in the 60s. Right. And I grew up uh, <laughs> with my parents who were laborers, black laborers, uh, factory workers. Uh, and my sister and my brother and I, the three of us and our two parents, sitting down watching the Huntley-Brinkley news program every weekday evening after daddy got in from the sawmill. I mean, that was the ritual. The TV was in the place where we ate meals and, uh, and that you, you couldn't, you, number one, you couldn't eat without saying grace and you couldn't eat during the week without the Huntley Brinkley news program out for two reasons. Number one, mom and daddy wanted us to find out what was going on in the world. We wanted to see if Dr. King had done something. Yeah. The example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The example. And number two, mama was intent that we would learn good diction. <laughs> and Chet Huntley and uh-huh. David Brinkley practiced great diction, <laughs> D-I-C-T-I-O-N, uh, that those of us in the South are not necessarily known practicing. <laughs> and Mama and Daddy were determined that their children would learn proper diction, and Chet Huntley and David Brinkley were our tutors, That's so awesome. to speak. <laughs> but uh, we had you know, the civil rights campaign of Martin Luther King uh, was a, was literally the YouTube. It was the CNN. It was the, the access that that we had because understand King was doing what other preachers weren't doing. King Mm -hmm. was doing what Billy Graham wasn't doing. Right. And King was doing what nobody else was doing. And my parents were not criticizing King. They were using King as an example mm-hmm. of what kind of what it meant to be truly a follower of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I was seeing locally other clergy, black clergy, either trying to emulate King by challenging injustice in our locality, or backing away from King's version of civil disobedience and prophetic life because they didn't think that preachers were supposed to do anything that would get them in trouble with the law. Right. And people forget that Martin King was literally ousted from the national Baptist convention mm-hmm. uh, because of his support for civil rights. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and, and so, I mean, that was the example I had. And, and the last thing I'll say is, my parents gave me and had me learn from this very, very controversial, subversive book called the Bible. How dare they? Yeah, how dare they <laughs> give you the Bible? To read? I, I mean, I mean, and all of the stuff I read in the Bible were these subversive people. I mean, there was mm-hmm. there were subversive women. Yep. I mean, before there was a Me Too movement, there were subversive women subversive midwives defying an imperial decree to commit infanticide. Mm -hmm. They didn't consult a priest or a rabbi or a pastor. There was no tablet of law, but they were doing it. And they did it 
And then because of that, Jochebed had Moses and Miriam and Jochebed hid Moses and the daughter of Pharaoh defied her dad. And I thought, wait a minute. This is this is this is this is good stuff. Yeah. Now I didn't have any idea that I was being to say say so to speak, I was being conditioned, but I really literally was. I was learning mm-hmm. that is something called holy descent. Yeah. That the idea of being prophetic and the idea of being pastoral are not polar opposites, they're actually conjoined. And so you cannot be, as I understand the biblical text, an effective pastor of your house, Jochebed, and her husband, Mm -hmm. if you're not also prophetic to defy the empire. Mm -hmm. You hide your male child. You hide the pregnancy. Uh, Pua and Shipra defy the empire and actually deceive it. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that was really part of what that founded me. And right. I can't take credit for it. I mean, goodness gracious, I had my Sunday school teachers, those those women. Blame blame those Sunday school teaching women. <laughs> uh, well, Judge, even though we are talking about your retirement from the bench, you are far from retired, obviously. You are still pastoring at New Millennium Church in Little Rock, and you write um, quite a bit about critical social issues. What do you feel like are some of the most important issues that people are facing today? Thank you, Missy. I wish we talked more about fascism Mm. and the way that fascism is currently being disguised as religious nationalism, uh, fascism in the face uh, operating through white supremacy, patriarchy, misogyny, and xenophobia, transphobia, and homophobia is actually being disguised as religious nationalism and, uh, and militaristic capitalism. And so everybody gets gets really, really upset when you talk about caring for the least of these, and you talk about socialism. But what they are really ignoring is the fact that in the name of, in the name of free enterprise, in the name of quote conservative values, in the name of quote make America great again, we have become comfortable with the same kind of forces in this society that were the things that Dietrich Bonhoeffer fought the Third Reich about. Mm-hmm. And we are not paying attention. So much so that Donald Trump got 73% of the white evangelical vote in 2016 and 80% the white evangelical vote. And white evangelicals opposed his impeachment even after there was clear evidence that he was responsible for things that were both defying his oath as president but also damaging 
I mean, I never thought I would live the time where I would see people who call themselves followers of Jesus openly brag about supporting a leader who called immigrants from any place, places from, quote, S-hole countries. Yeah. Okay? I mean, this. these are people who in whose whose Bible I thought had a Matthew 25 that says, in as much as you did not welcome the stranger, you did not welcome me. And then to see people called strangers illegal. Yeah. Uh, I you know, and that's fascism. But it is now sacralized fascism. Yeah. Because people can say they're doing it and claim that they are following the Romans 12 injunction to be the Romans 12 injunction to be obedient to the ruling authorities. Mm-hmm. Well, judge, I, for one, am thankful that there are prophets out there like yourself, organizations like good faith media and our partners, such as the good folks at Baptist joint committee and interfaith Alliance who are working so diligently to call out this fascism for what it is. It's heresy. Uh, It is inhumane. And uh, I just want to applaud you over your career and what you're currently doing as pastor of New Millennium Church in Little Rock. You're just one of our heroes, and we thank you so much for being with us at Good Faith Weekly uh, this week. But, Judge, before we go, Missy's got one last question she wants to ask you. So, Judge Griffin, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of your long career, your work, um, and our conversation today, what is your more to tell? Missy, thank you. And before I answer the more to tell, I want to thank Mitch and Good Faith Weekly and Good Faith Media for letting me be part of your team. Thank you. Well, we're we're honored. We are honored to have you. (laughs) I'm glad to be on your bench. There's more to tell. There is a question that haunts me. There's a line in the New Testament where Jesus asks that says that the Son of Man is looking for faith, but will the Son of Man find faith like this? The kind of faith as the faith of that widow who pursued the unjust judge who she knew was unjust and who made a name for not caring about God or the opinions of others, but she pestered him and worried him down. And the question was, we we read that text and we say that's about prayer, but actually it's about a pesky kind of faith, (laughs) a persevering kind of faith, a faith that says, I know that I'm living in in a hateful world. But I refuse to yield to the world. The more to tell is there is more faith for us to live into than we have. And we have a great cloud of witnesses to draw from. But the question is, will the Lord find us living into that kind of faith? Whenever the Lord calls us to wherever the Lord calls us to be. I happen to believe the Lord's going to come back here and set up shop. And the Lord's going to, you know, there's, there's used to be a, 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 
a bumper sticker. Jesus is coming back. And Lord, is he pissed? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. You know, I kind of like it. I think Jesus is coming back. Uh-huh. And I think Jesus is going to be perturbed, but not just perturbed at the folks we call in the world. Yeah. The more to tell is Jesus come back and Jesus is going to be perturbed at many of us who say we call ourselves Father Jesus. But as Clarence Jordan said, we're more friendly about Jesus than we're following Jesus. Oh, wow. That's damning. Judge, it's always a pleasure, my friend. Congratulations on your retirement from the bench. We look forward to hearing more from you and New Millennium Church in Little Rock. Check out uh, their website. They've got a lot of great things going on in Little Rock. And Reverend, it's an honor, my friend. Thank you for all you do. Blessings to you. Uh, God bless you real good. Uh, thanks, Thank Judge. It was a really good conversation. Learned so much. It's always an honor to have Judge Griffin on the show and to be able to talk to him. He's just a wealth of wisdom and information. Just conversations like that we just had with um, Judge Reverend Judge Griffin Mm -hmm. and others just remind me how lucky we are to be doing what we are and to just get to spend time with some incredible um people with their wealth of knowledge and inspiration and I just I count him as that he was he was so fun but also um enlightening and inspiring and yeah I just really enjoyed our time with him yeah and he's been a good friend of Good Faith Media previously a Baptist Center for Ethics and Baptist Today for a long time um, in fact, one of my great, uh, my, one of my favorite stories about Judge Griffin is I was actually over in Arkansas attending a meeting, uh, covering an event over in Little Rock, and he was there, and it was a Friday night actually, and uh, so I saw him at the event and said hello to him, and uh, we exchanged some pleasantries, and then at the end of the conversation, he says, Are "You in town on Sunday?" And I said, "Yes, sir." He said. You're going to preach. <laughs> I said, yes, uh-uh. sir. Oh, no, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. I had nothing. <laughs> and so uh, this little guy went back to the hotel room That's and started amazing. writing. Yeah, so, That's so fun. Uh, well, I, and I learned something today, too. Okay. I mean, you can't say that this podcast is not educational. I learned what a dictaphone is. <laughs> yes, you so did. that was not something I knew uh, previously. Uh, that was, that was funny. It was very funny. And what our listeners were unaware of during the interview is that our media producer, Cliff Vaughn, uh, as soon as you said that, we're sending texts to you telling you what, what it, it was. was. Yes. <laughs> if there's nothing you know about um, Good Faith Media, you should know that our staff, we do enjoy heckling each other behind the scenes whenever there's some sort of important Zoom or uh, staff meeting. There's frequently texts flying in the background of us uh, throwing shade at one another for <laughs> something <know>. stupid. <laughs> yeah, it happens all the time. <laughs> Just not to you. You're the only no, one No, I never in the get dark. the text, but I know that I'm the target of a lot of those texts. Right. <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyways. You know, one of the things that stood out to me in our conversation, and there were so many great things that uh, the judge said, but one thing that just resonated to me or with me was him alluding to when we were complimented him about his career. He immediately went to the fact that he stood on the shoulders of people who came before him. And he mentions MLK and he mentions President Carter and, Mm -hmm. You know, there are so many others that he did not mention, but it was just a, a good reminder about legacy and the importance of living life well, not only for what's taking place today, but for generations to come. 
Absolutely. I totally agree. And just the, the fact, and I think it was such an interesting um, question you asked, and we could have talked about this for hours. I could have just sat and listened to him tell stories, but about how he was able to meld his uh, job on the bench and, and, you know, being in that system, but also as, as a prophet behind the pulpit and kind of marrying the two. And he tells the story about that case uh, that, you know, kind of got him in trouble well, I guess trouble. I don't know what you'd call it, but um, good trouble as a good John, trouble, as absolutely. But I just so admire the fact that he said this. He this was wrong. This is absolutely wrong, and I'm not going to state otherwise. And and just the the, the integrity that he has is just it's just incredible. I just really respect well, him. It's interesting he brought that up, particularly this week, as we commemorate and remember the legacy and life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr that we often hear from individuals that we need to protest a certain way or we need to act more appropriately or we need to be patient uh, when we criticize systems and what's going on in the world. And we remember Dr. King's beautiful and prophetic letter from the jail in Birmingham, letter from the Birmingham jail, when he says, uh, if not now, when, right. to his moderate white brethren in, Al- in Alabama. And I think about the good trouble that the judge got into on a pretty consistent basis in Arkansas. But I'm left with that image. How else was he going to call attention to the injustices that were taking place, not only in the streets of Little Rock, but also in the powerful systems that were oppressing people who were powerless. Mm -hmm. And I think he did it in an appropriate, legal, and honorable way. He's just incredible. I really enjoyed our time with him and so thankful that now that he's retired and has so much time on his hands that he is <laughs> lending us his voice and his brilliance and, and came on board with Good Faith Media as a contributing correspondent so that everyone can can share um, and glean from him as well. Absolutely. Well, it's been a great episode, great conversation. It's beginning talking about our time here in Lincoln as well as uh, the season of Epiphany and conversation with Judge Griffin, always enlightening. And uh, we just hope everybody has a, a great weekend. Absolutely. Have a good weekend, and we'll see you back next week. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.